You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Evan Banks. And I'm Deanna Lee. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's February 26th. In December of last year, a RAND survey asked nearly a thousand former public school teachers about why they had left their jobs. The most common response? Stress. And while it's certainly true that COVID-19 has added more challenges for teachers, from health risks to increased hours to difficulties with remote learning, stress was actually the most common reason why teachers quit before the pandemic, too. Here's an overview of the responses from our survey. Three out of every four teachers said work was often or always stressful in the most recent year in which they taught. Teachers cited stress nearly twice as often as insufficient pay as their reason for quitting. In fact, most former teachers went on to take jobs with less or equal pay, and three out of ten said they took jobs without health insurance. Almost half of respondents who left teaching early and voluntarily since March 2020 listed the pandemic as the main reason for their departure. And finally, it's worth noting that different COVID-19-related stressors affected teachers who quit amid the pandemic in different ways. For example, insufficient pay and childcare responsibilities were more likely to drive out teachers under 40, while older teachers were more likely to say health conditions made them leave. Fortunately, there is some good news for school districts. A substantial share of those we surveyed said they would be willing to return to teaching under certain conditions. For example, once most staff are vaccinated or there is regular COVID-19 testing of staff and students. And we may soon see whether or not this happens, as schools across the country consider whether and how to return to in-person instruction. Traditionally, U.S. policy in the Middle East has relied heavily on military power and has centered on regional threats, particularly the Iranian threat. According to a new RAND report, Washington's longstanding policies in the Middle East aren't working. They're not advancing American interests, nor are they helping people who live in the region. So what's the alternative? The authors of the report outline an approach in which the U.S. shifts to a non-military mindset, instead emphasizing economic investments, governance, diplomacy, and programs focused on people. Our researchers identify a number of specific actions, including focusing on counterterrorism through non-military programs to help stabilize war-torn countries and counter violent extremism, supporting regional growth and development by increasing engagement on issues like health, youth unemployment, and climate change, and maintaining a spotlight on human rights abuses at the highest levels of government, including consistent pressure for the release of political prisoners. Overall, this strategy is centered on a positive vision of outcomes in the Middle East, rather than one focused solely on threats. Lead author Dalia Dasake puts it this way, Quote, we need to start thinking about what we are for in this region, not just what we are against. Another new RAND report published this week also focuses on the Middle East, specifically Yemen. Yemen's civil war is now in its sixth year. More than 250,000 people have been killed, and the conflict has created one of the worst humanitarian crises in the world. 
Our report examines how to end the cycle of violence, failed peace talks, and broken promises. Drawing from five years of research in Yemen, which included expansive data collection and 200 interviews with military, government, community, and tribal leaders, the authors assess the origins of the conflict, how costly it's been, how political influence, economic interests, and military ties have shaped the peace process, and much more. They also provide clear recommendations for achieving an enduring peace in Yemen. Chief among them, building peace will require an unprecedented commitment from the international community. This commitment would include creating an international body that can oversee and support what will be a decades-long process of reconciliation, reconstruction, and redevelopment. And importantly, this international body must provide a voice to the different political actors across Yemen. Since the attack on the U.S. Capitol last month, Congress is considering options to address domestic terrorism. But Rand's Brian Michael Jenkins, a renowned terrorism expert, says that there are good reasons to be wary of passing new legislation to deal with this threat. For instance, hastily written laws can have negative unintended consequences. Jenkins cites the Patriot Act, which some see as a prototype for domestic terrorism legislation, as a recent example of such consequences. The Patriot Act sailed through Congress in the month following 9-11, but it enabled a controversial expansion of electronic surveillance over American citizens that the bill's sponsors never envisioned. Another concern Passing a new domestic terrorism law may not necessarily make it easier to prosecute terrorists. That's because prosecutors would likely have to prove each defendant's participation and motive, which could be difficult. Trying domestic terrorists as ordinary criminal offenders, on the other hand, may be simpler and less controversial. Jenkins warns that stopping increased violence by domestic extremists may be the greatest legal challenge and politically the most delicate undertaking this nation has faced since the Civil War. But instead of a new domestic terrorism law, what this moment calls for, he says, is rigorous and equal enforcement of existing law. Chances are you probably identify as part of the middle class. That's because surveys have shown that most Americans do. Of course, we all might have different definitions for what we think it means to be the middle class. Many Americans associate being middle class with specific qualities, such as thriftiness and dedication to work. Others think of it relative to income, or if they own a house, or have retirement savings. And researchers also have different ways of defining the middle class. In a new paper, RAND experts seek to answer the question, who is middle class? They take a closer look at two different ways of defining this group of Americans, and track the decline of the middle class, which has been either receiving less income or shrinking in size since the 1970s. In fact, the U.S. middle class is now smaller than middle class populations in comparable countries. The authors also consider how COVID-19 will probably further accelerate the decline of the middle class, contributing to the growing likelihood that lower-income Americans and their children will remain stuck outside the middle class with limited opportunities for upward mobility. This paper is the first publication from our new research center, the Rand Lowy Family Middle Class Pathways Center. 
The center is committed to forging new and better paths toward equitable and sustainable work opportunities in today's challenging world. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org/podcast, and we'll see you next week.